Hello, this is Dr. Laura Shaheen, and today we'll be mapping miscarriage on the 15-Minute Matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Lara Shaheen. Dr. Lara Shaheen is a reproductive endocrinologist and director of the Center for Recurrent Miscarriage at Pacific Northwest Fertility in Seattle, Washington. She has over 15 years experience caring for patients with miscarriage and educating on various platforms, including her best-selling book, Not Broken, An Approachable Guide to Miscarriage and Recurrent Pregnancy Loss, her social media platforms, her academic research, and her critically acclaimed Baby or Bust podcast. Hi, Dr. Shaheen. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So we're talking today about miscarriage, and I know there are so many misconceptions about this topic, and I'm wondering, Dr. Shaheen, if you can start us off with a definition. Absolutely. And guess what? Different professional medical societies define it in different ways. So there's lots of different definitions, but in general, it's a pregnancy that stops developing before viability. And so in general, in the United States, we sort of say it's a pregnancy that stops developing before at least 20 weeks gestation. And there's a little bit of a difference between the stage of miscarriage. So I'm really focused on first trimester miscarriage. If it's really early along, it's considered a biochemical miscarriage. So you know, positive pregnancy test, either urine test or blood test, but stops developing before you can see anything on ultrasound or before you can test any tissue for a diagnosis that's a biochemical miscarriage. But a clinical miscarriage is when the pregnancy stops developing after a little bit, you know, later, like six and a half weeks or further, where you can see something on ultrasound or do tissue testing. I just want to say I really appreciate how deeply you go into this because I think there is a lot of confusion and that confusion leads to confusion on our part, how to best support people. So two types, biochemical and clinical, and they're mostly related to the time in the first trimester. Do I have that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. But if the pregnancy stops developing at you know, 18 weeks. So that's technically a miscarriage, but that's in the second trimester. So 
that's what I focus on first trimester miscarriages as a reproductive endocrinologist, but it's still technically a miscarriage, even if it's a little bit later. Okay, got it. And then to flip the question a little bit, there are some things that are not a miscarriage. Do I have that right? That we might think of as a miscarriage, but they're actually something different? Sure. So like, for example, an ectopic pregnancy. So that's a pregnancy outside of the uterine cavity, you know, most often implants and starts developing in the fallopian tube. And it's a medical emergency. We need to take care of people and make sure that we treat them before it gets too far along and causes bleeding and urgency for, you know, a surgery. So that is usually happening in the first trimester, but you don't usually call that a miscarriage. Molar pregnancy is a type of abnormal early miscarriage. It's genetics. It's the way the pregnancy is kind of developing, but you don't usually call it a miscarriage. You call it a molar pregnancy and follow it for a lot longer and rare, but that is another type of early pregnancy loss. And then, you know, if someone has a termination for whatever reason, they do something, they take medication or they do a DNC or a procedure to stop the pregnancy developing for whatever reason, that's not technically a miscarriage because it was terminated. It wasn't a spontaneous stop or slowing of development of the pregnancy. Okay. So we've got those things, I think, now identified. I'm wondering if people or certain people or certain situations put us at a higher risk. I imagine age would be one, but are there other factors that put us at higher risks for miscarriage? Sure. So the most common cause of first trimester miscarriage is a chromosomal imbalance within the embryo. So every time an egg and sperm come together, they each give half of the genetic information and it comes in the form of chromosomes. And if there's a missing chromosome or imbalances, then you can have fertilization and the embryo can implant and the pregnancy can start to develop but most often it'll stop developing within the first trimester. And if you do tissue diagnosis on a miscarriage, it can be you know, 60, 80, 90% of the time, depending on a lot of different factors, you'll find that that is why someone had a miscarriage. Now, you have a higher chance of chromosomal issues as eggs and sperm age. So that's why miscarriage rates go up as eggs and sperm age. Other things that we think about that can cause miscarriage that we look for when we're trying to figure out why someone keeps having miscarriages could be anatomic issues. So you think about like a septum, which is a fibrous band of tissue that someone's born with that causes issues with if the embryo happens to implant on that fibrous band of tissue, doesn't have a good egg supply anatomical things that could change over time. Someone could have fibroids. So not all fibroids cause miscarriages. But if the fibroid is located within the uterine cavity where an embryo could implant, again, you can have a higher chance of miscarriage. You think about some hormonal disorders, you know, thyroid disease, diabetes, some elevated prolactin levels that can be associated with an increased risk of miscarriage. And one genetic thing that we look for in the people that are conceiving that is very rare, but some people can be born with something called a balanced translocation. So I always pick the person with sperm, you know, the male partner when I'm 
talking about this because whenever there's an evaluation in a couple with recurrent miscarriage, we're always so female focused. And so I'm like, all right, we're going to test you for this balanced translocation, even though we test both partners. And I'm like, if you have it, it means that when the egg and sperm came together to make you, there's just an exchange of material between these two chromosomes and you're fine. You've got all the DNA. There's not missing data. You're great. But when you go to make sperm, every time you make sperm, some of your sperm is going to be missing big parts of DNA. So you as a couple have a higher chance of miscarriage. You know, not every pregnancy will result in miscarriage, but let's look for that balanced translocation. Only occurs in 3% of couples with recurrent loss, but let's not miss that. And then we do look at immune issues. You know, the one immune issue that's been associated with recurrent miscarriage is antiphospholipid syndrome. And that's a presence of antibodies in the system that really should not be there outside of pregnancy. And we're still trying to figure out exactly the mechanisms, but in general, it's easy for me to explain with patients that if these antibodies are present, they really disrupt placentation when the placenta is trying to interact with the uterine wall and that decidualization process. And so that can really throw off an increased risk of miscarriage. I want to make sure that we speak into how to support people who have what might be considered recurrent miscarriage. And I know there's some information about what recurrent miscarriages would be and how that would be defined. Can you talk into that a little bit? I would love to talk about that because the definition has changed since I was in training. And so I think there's a lot of providers out there that still believe that we should not do an evaluation unless someone has had three consecutive clinical miscarriages. And that's actually not the case. So the American Society of Reproductive Medicine in 2020 redefined recurrent miscarriage as two or more pregnancies that spontaneously stop developing before viability. So it's not, it doesn't have to be three, it can be two And they even removed, they used to have the word clinical. It has to be two clinically recognized miscarriages to instigate an evaluation. But that left out all of these people that are having earlier miscarriages, biochemical miscarriages. And by removing that one word, they opened the door to allow people to have testing and make sure that they're not missing anything before they try for that third pregnancy. And that's really revolutionary in our field. Yes, so important because then people can get like the help they feel like they need. And I want to talk about that emotional component and get your advice on how we do support people who are experiencing these challenges. It is absolutely essential. So I have had my Center for Recurrent Miscarriage for over 10 years now. And At first, it's really overwhelming to take care of these patients because you don't always have the answer. Like even when you do a thorough evaluation, over half of the time, you don't find an anatomic issue, a hormone issue, a balanced translocation, because you are testing the people that are getting pregnant. And the most common issue is within that embryo. And most people don't think to test miscarriages for chromosome imbalances because it's emotional. You worry about cost and it's sort of in the moment. You think, oh, well, it might not really change what they do next, right? So you're dealing with people and you don't always have that answer. But because each time someone gets pregnant, it's a new opportunity. It's a brand new egg and a brand new sperm. 
brand new chromosomes come together. Most people that are getting pregnant, even if they're miscarrying, they will go on to have a baby. And I just have seen that you know, in my own practice year after year, it doesn't feel that way when you've had multiple miscarriages. You feel like, well, yeah, every time I see a positive pregnancy test, it just ends in disappointment. And so helping to acknowledge that anxiety that comes with a positive pregnancy test and that emotional piece and that PTSD that happens when you come in for that ultrasound where the last time you did this, there was no heartbeat. We have to acknowledge that because we need to make sure people have the courage and the support to try again. Because some people, I really feel like I've failed my patients the most when they stop trying. It's okay to decide to be child-free. It's okay to change your life goals and walk away from trying. Like That is fantastic and wonderful for some people. But if they stop because they don't have the emotional support or they are just not getting the mental health care that they need, then I think that I have failed them or we as a medical community have failed them. So you have to pay attention to it. What you said there, so much of it was so important. And I'm imagining that the people who are trying to get pregnant are blaming themselves. And what you said there is it might not be something within them. It might be something dysfunctional for full development in the embryo. And We really need to hold that place because I imagine people go into a overzealous arena of what they're doing, what they're not doing, and that that isn't supportive of mental health as well. But I don't even know if I'm thinking about that right, wondering what you see in practice. Absolutely. You have great insight into this. And it's true. The person who's getting pregnant is a very easy target. What did I do wrong? I want this baby so badly. And the doctor can't tell me exactly why it happened. I'm going on Dr. Google and they're saying, you know, all these things. I'm sure it was that glass of wine before I knew I was pregnant. The male partner might be like, oh my gosh, we had intercourse the day before we went in and there was no heartbeat. It must be because of that. When there's no answer and it's such a gray area of medicine, it's a coping mechanism to blame yourself. Because if you can just figure out exactly what you did wrong, then you can change that activity or change that supplement or change that exercise level. And then when you get pregnant again, if you've changed, then it won't happen again. And the problem with that is it doesn't make sense scientifically, but also you get into this spiral of restriction and sort of self blame. So that if you have another miscarriage, even though you changed some activity or lifestyle component, you'd be like, oh, I must have not been good enough. I must have still been doing something wrong. It feels good at first to be like, oh, I've got an answer. I'm going to do this thing different ways. So I build up the courage to try again. But if it doesn't work, it just continues a spiral. Yeah. Devastating. So what can we do to support you because you're doing the work inside the clinic that isn't necessarily with the patients or the to-be parents every single day. What are the things that those of us who might be seeing people more regularly and who have been through this can do to support the work that you do inside the clinic? 
Yeah. Well, I definitely think that it takes a team. I don't know who's on everybody's team, but it's got to be more than just the doctor and the patient in this scenario. So that you've got to have the nursing team that can sort of talk to patients who've had miscarriages before. A lot of my patients go to acupuncture. I strongly encourage mental health and therapy. And then a lot of times people are looking at their nutrition and lifestyle changes and things that they can do because truly the healthier you are, the more fertile you are within a balance, right? So not a negative thing, but just like, yes, okay, let's look at, because you can get back a little bit of that feeling. You feel so out of control when you have miscarriage or infertility. You can get back a little bit of feeling of in control, but just be very delicate when you're taking care of these patients. You need to say, hey, miscarriage is not your fault. You are not broken. That's the title of my book. And, you know, not broken. This is most likely an embryo issue. I'm going to support you. And we are going to look at your diet and nutrition and sleep patterns and all these positive things that we can do for your overall health, but not coming at it like, oh, you were doing this wrong before. And that's why you had a miscarriage. And so we're going to fix it. It's more like, hey, remember, this is not your fault. I'm on your team, you know, get the evaluation with the reproductive endocrinologist. We are the ones that focus on recurrent miscarriage, you know, make sure that you're not missing anything that you can fix. And on the same time, let's look at your overall nutrition, wellness for your overall health. And that's only going to help your reproductive health. I don't think providers should come in trying to fix something when it's so ambiguous, but it's more support. Yeah, I love that. And really making sure that we're supporting the stress and resilience as well. Like, how is this impacting the individual and also the couple? You know, I imagine there's a ton of strain on the relationship and recognizing that and holding it. Before I let you go, I do want to ask you to talk about the word abortion in a medical setting because I've heard you speak about how that term is used and how jarring it can be for a couple or an individual who's trying to get pregnant and who sees their medical records. Is there a light you can shine on that term in the medical setting? Absolutely. And that is in the very first part of my book too, because abortion is a medical term. It has been politicized and it has been given, you know, value systems, but truly abortion just means a stopping of a pregnancy before viability. And we have adopted it to focus on therapeutic abortion, meaning an active termination of pregnancy. We've made the word abortion mean that in politics and out in the lay public. In a medical textbook and in your billing and in the communication between you know, doctors and medical records, abortion just means the pregnancy stopped developing. And you define it by, oh, if it's a missed abortion, that means that the patient comes in, they're 10 weeks pregnant by their last menstrual period, but you do an ultrasound and you see that there's no heartbeat and that pregnancy is measuring six weeks. Actually, that pregnancy stopped developing at six weeks gestation. There's just no signs of it. There's been no bleeding, cramping. And so it's like it happened, but you missed it. A complete abortion just means that there was a pregnancy, 
and now the pregnancy is not there. Meaning like you do an ultrasound and there's no gestational sac anymore. Someone's passed tissue. Doesn't say how they passed the tissue, whether they took a medication to induce it or whether they just passed it at home spontaneously. Okay. So it's very much of a medical term and it's explaining, you know, what's happened with the pregnancy. Not, it's not a judgmental term. It's not a political term, but we've made it that. I think that's so important and I'm glad to point back to the book to talk about it more, but I think it's important for all of us who are working with people who may be experiencing miscarriage or recurrent miscarriages to understand that because they may come to us alarmed, scared, upset based on seeing their medical records. And this gives us an opportunity to reframe that, point them back to this episode and your information because (laughs) there becomes a context that helps to actually be a part of managing stress and resilience as well. So thank you so much for speaking into this and for the work you do, Dr. Shaheen. I'm very grateful that we have the opportunity to speak with you and to understand this more completely. I'm so grateful for this opportunity. Thank you for having me here today. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks to Natalie Merrill, Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, and Rowan Bradley for their support in making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your clients' issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.